Hello, everybody, and welcome to another episode of the prestigious Pints in our Agile podcast series. This episode, we're talking with Dr. Sally-Anne Freudenberg, uh, an Agile coach who she says is now retired, but I don't think she'll ever retire officially. She, um, she's, I've known Sal for about 10 years or so, Paul, uh, I've known her as well, uh, and we met through a great shared connection of ours, Jean Tobaker, who, who, we, who was one of the things that we talked about today. Um, you probably know Sal from a number of different areas, but probably the most prominent area is her pushing and promotion of the inclusivity uh, of collaboration. So including neurodiversity, um, women inclusion and agile, uh, and, and ultimately her PhD in collaboration has driven a lot of what she's done. But she's, as with most of our guests, a lot more than just that. So we learn about a lot about her background, including her diving training her work at uh, in industries, companies like Cucumber and things, uh, and all the way back to her, her dissertation on the psychology of pair programming. So a really interesting conversation with one of our favourite people. Hope you enjoy it, Dr. Sally Ann Freudenberg. Done this for a while. Yeah, I feel, I feel a bit rusty. Well, it has been a while. Has it? It's been a while since we've done. Last time we were together, we were actually in a pub. Well, that's true. Which is a novelty. Back in our sheds. Where, and we've got another special guest with us. Sal, where are you? Dr. Sal, where are you? <laughs> um, so I'm uh, in Somerset. I'm in my office in rural Somerset, where it's a bit drizzly at the moment and very dark outside. Yeah, we've got a lovely bay window there. Yeah, you get a nice view nice. when it's when it's bright. Yeah, out onto the chickens. Chickens. <laughs> I, I eggs, eggs every morning. Uh, well, they've stopped laying at the moment, and they probably won't start until the spring again. They're not oh, liking ooh. the drizzly weather either. Mm. So yes, Dr. Sally Ann Freudenberg. I, I've never really given you the, the the proper address. I always called you Sal. That's what most people call me, to be fair. Yeah. <laughs> well, I, I, that's one thing I actually want to, I want to talk about because I know you've got your your specialty. But we do need to go through the whole rigmarole for our for our, it's not a rigmarole. That sounds like a chore. Um, but our listeners do like to know what we're drinking. So, have you got anything there, Paul? I've got something a little bit special today, just just for Sal, just for a, a special, and it's special because it's mem a memory for me, right? So I was in um, my local supermarket, and I'm going to hold it up um, to the camera. Um, this is a bottle of Inches cider. Oh, lovely! So uh, Inches, I used to work for Inches. Oh, I've told you this, Jeff, haven't I? You know this. Mm. I used to work at a cider factory in my year out at uni. And it was inches cider, so um, I kind of feel uh, you know, tied to this brand anyway because I used to work at the factory. It did get bought out since I um, after I left, but it's a little. It used to be a little tiny um, cider company in Devon, in a little village called Winkley. <laughs> Don't laugh. 
Winkley. So childish. <laughs> yeah, and I worked there for about six months. I was a, a laboratory assistant. I was um, quality assurance in the lab, checking to make sure there was enough cider in every bottle. That was pretty much it. And checking the so CO2. So the quantity there. rather than the quality you were checking? No, it's quality as well. So I also had to check that there was enough uh, CO2 in it. I did CO2 testing on the bottles. Okay. So and was I looked there, at this. Did you have to test test the acidity and things like that as well? Yeah, yeah, acidity. Yeah, a couple of other things, and um, couple. Yeah, every hour I'd run out and get a, get a, a fresh set of bottles from the from the plant and uh, and just run tests on them. Yeah, and I did it for t- six months, and it's still. I think it's had a bit of a. Um, it's made by Bulmers now, which is a major, a big um cider producer in Hereford. But um, yeah. So I thought I'd buy that buy, buy that for old times' sake, a bottle Very of inches. I bought it. Sal, have you got a drink? Yeah. Oh, my drink's really boring. Look, I've got some Ribena. Oh, oh I love Ribena. <laughs> That's a great drink there, Ribena. Is. Have, you, have you ever had Ribena and lemonade? Uh, no, I've made fizzy Ribena with the soda stream, but I've not put lemonade with it. Too Try sweet, it. surely, Jeff. Too sweet. No, well, you say that, but it's amazing. Mm-hmm. Um, and some brand has brought out Robina, fizzy Robina, and I bought it in the supermarket, and it's not as good. Oh, Robina really? and lemonade. So, uh, no, Robina is a very, very good drink. Uh, and you could just put it in a wine glass and say it as red wine if, if you yeah. wanted to. Okay. We can edit that back out if you like. So you can just... <laughs> <laughs> I could look really sophisticated, like, I'm here with a glass of Merlot. No. Well, it's normally the, the way around, isn't it, with these Zoom calls, is that people are putting their wine in a, in a coffee mug yeah, and pretending they're drinking coffee. You're doing it the other way around. You always have to be different, don't you, Sal? Anyway, <laughs> I've got a new toy. I've got a new toy. Physics. Physics. It's a home. Oh, I didn't need to. Didn't need to drop the brand in, I suppose. But it's it's a home sort of draft pour thing. Oh. So you can put any any bottle in there or any can in there, and it will put in just a little bit of like CO two or whatever, and it will make it taste like it's a draft rather than come out of a can or a bottle. So I've got, this was my birthday present, by the way. It was very late because it was out of stock because it was so popular. But I've got a BrewDog Double Haze. This is a 7.2 Cloudy New England IPA. So it's got a little pipe in there. All right. And you pop it up on top of the pop can. The pipe, pop the pipe in the can. Oh. Turn it around to lock it in place. And then you just pour it out. <laughs> Wouldn't it be hilarious now if it went all over himself? <laughs> I think that might be my new favourite thing. Oh, and does it Look taste it. different? That's that's what all our listeners want to know, Jeff. Does it does it taste different? Does it taste better? Well, well I think it does, but that might be psychology. And yeah. again, this is something we can talk to Sal about because Sal is, a, is, a, is an expert. Are you, have you done side by side? Like blind no, taste I'm, test? That's going to be something I'm going to try. Mm. Yeah. It, I will do. In fact, I've still got some left in the can, so why not? Bit of, bit of confirmation now. bias in there, maybe, yeah. Jeff? Yeah, you but think... you'll know. You need to get somebody else to, to yeah. put the two yeah. cups so you don't know which one's which. Yeah, but it's a step, isn't it? I could try it. Yeah, yeah. yeah. If I don't taste any difference here, there's no point doing the blind test. <laughs> it's quite sweet. Is it sweet? It tastes sweet. That's a lot more froth on the uh, on the one you've prepared. Yeah, I would. I, I mean, I would happily drink it out of the can, mm-hmm. but that is softer, and obviously you get the head, so you get the sort of frothy start, which is a little bit different. So it's a little bit softer. Yeah, it's nice. It's a it's a cool gimmick, isn't it? 
And it works with any any bottle, any can. Any bottle, any can, yeah. Oh. Even those little 330 mil ones, because the pipe goes all the way down to the bottom. Oh, clever. And it, and if you so put if it, you um, use... oh, I can't. Anyway, go on. Go on. Cheers. If you used a, if you used, cheers. If you used a still drink in it, would it give you that sort of halfway between it being Ooh. still and sparkling? Do you think that'd be a next test? Maybe I'll try a glass of wine. Oh no, like water, <laughs> surely. Uh, so yeah, isn't it just like a soda stream? Because Sal mentioned no. soda stream. Is it not? No, it's not. It's not like fizzy, fizzy. It's not added bubbles or anything. You still see it still. Oh, uh, okay. But it's just giving a bit of a bit of a froth, bit of life. I don't know exactly what it does. I didn't read the instructions in my mouth. It's very cool. It made a, it made a techie noise, definitely. Yeah, it did. Well, it's also USB powered as well, so I can just I can charge it with USB. <laughs> you can take it when you're out training workshops. Have your drop beer exactly, in yeah. the break. It's exactly. all good. <laughs> <laughs> Very good, Jeff. Anyway, enough about me. I've, I've hogged enough of the limelight. Welcome, welcome, Sal. Welcome, Sal. Yeah, nice to have you here. Thank you. I, nice to be I here. I generally, uh, most people will know my memory is getting worse and worse. So I can't even begin to hope to put a date on when we when we first met. Can you? Um, no, probably not. <laughs> no, gosh. I was going to say it's got to be about ten years ago, isn't it? Sounds about right. And in in what Sounds setting right. in what setting would you have met? Do you, do you remember where where it was or what situation it was? It was in a pub. Oh, it well. was in a pub. It was in a <laughs> pub. Um, and was Jean there, or did Jean just say go and meet Sal because she's in this pub? No, Jean was there. So I was. Um, I, I can't remember if I was co-training, I think, with Jean, very, mm -hmm. uh, the very wonderful late Jean Tobaker on um, a scrum training course. Um, she very graciously let me co-train with her when I was a bit of a rookie. Um, and we were looking for something to do in the evening and she said, we've got to go and meet up with... Um, with 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 Jeff because he's around and he's amazing and would you like to come as well and meet him and so we came met you in the pub. It was cool. It was cool. I because I, I, I remember her saying to me before that, "Oh, you're in England. Sal's in England. Classic American thing. <laughs> uh, you must know Sal. If you don't, you know must Sal, you must live you, really close together. Yeah. Yeah. To be fair, we do. We do. The irony. <laughs> so um, so she kind of got that one right. But yeah. Um, Yes, but yeah, yeah, but that's kind of a, a rarity in a way because you don't really you have you do do training, don't you? But you don't really do a lot of it. It's not you're more of a you're, you have more of a techie background, didn't you, than a than a training background? Yeah, yeah. So originally, I came up, I suppose, the sort of quite standard techie route. So I did an IT, well, an IT and French degree, but essentially an IT degree. Um, and then started off as a programmer and then an analyst, designer, project manager, you know, the, the normal sort of route that, that people do in tech, I suppose. Um, should I give you the whole potted, the whole potted history? Um, so then I got to about 30 and I was a project manager at IBM and I was missing doing the techie stuff a little bit and I was a bit disenchanted with... Uh, with what I was doing at work. Um, 
so I packed it all in for a bit. It's a bit of a recurring theme for me, actually. So I packed it all in for a bit and um, uh, became a scuba diving instructor. <laughs> and um, <clears throat> I went off and lived in Thailand for a year. And then I lived in the Caribbean for a year. So I was going to take a year out and it sort of grew a bit. Lived in the Caribbean for a year. Um, Travelled around Indonesia and Malaysia a bit. Uh, lived in Greece for about nine months. Um, and then... I found myself in Greece on this beautiful beach thinking about the fact that we had um, sort of we had customers who were more and less experienced divers we had different dive sites that were more or less difficult deeper or shallower some had um, you know different currents and drifts and and, and things like that um, or maybe we wanted to do something more technical like a night dive or um, and then we had different people who could take folks on dives different sea conditions um, and I found myself sitting on this beach making out CRC cards to create to design a computer system to solve this the kind of like classic scheduling problem and then I just thought I'm gonna have to go back aren't I because obviously there's part of my brain that really really wants to go back and do all this stuff again so so I came back to the UK and back into um, I was gonna say the tech industry but actually then I started doing my PhD which was all about um, what so it started out as being what's, what has made the really fantastic tech teams that I've been on special and amazing compared to the ones that were distinctly average, really. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And, and how did that move into your PhD then? <laughs> so um, first year of your PhD is read, 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 um, write about what you've read. Um, and partway through that, somebody said to me, have you seen this thing called XP that's happened? Um, and they sent me the front page of, I can't remember, Computing or Computer Weekly, one of those magazines. Mm-hmm. Um, and and um, they were talking about a big, like a, an internet bank in the UK that were doing XP. Um, and I thought, gosh, you know, that sounds quite a lot like some of the things I did on these great teams. Like we paired, we um, we, did, we were a bit more test driven. We had an on-site customer, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and so I got in touch with the bank and said, can I come and see what you're doing? And then the very, I think the first or second person that I met there was the wonderful Rachel Davies, who said, I'm doing a training course all about XP. Why don't you come and play the XP game and learn more about it? And that was kind of how I ended up specializing in the psychology of pair programming. Wow. <laughs> awesome. Tell us, tell us more about that. The psychology in a nutshell. What, what, what's, what's all that about? Yeah, so I wanted to understand more about how um, pairs work together when they're pairing. Mm-hmm. And a lot of the kind of... Uh, I don't know if I want to call it folklore, but a lot of what people were saying about pairing at the time was, you know, there's this role of driver and navigator. Mm-hmm. Um, the driver works at a really low level of granular detail and the navigator's thinking about the bigger picture and all that kind of stuff. Um, and when I looked at some of the, some of the literature around the psychology of expertise and that kind of thing, I wanted to see whether... It felt like it all matched up and actually um, some of it did, but quite a lot of it looked like it didn't. So then I went and recorded. So I I think I 
I went to five different companies and okay. recorded hours and hours and hours of programmers dialogue. Um, and then I um, transcribed and analyzed 14,866 sentences nice. of dialogue. As you do, uh, yeah. Yeah, as you do. Um, especially, I just had a baby at that point. So it was, it was a perfect kind of mind-numbingly repetitive work um, to do when you just have a baby. It worked quite yeah. well. Um, and broke, it up, broke up the dialogue in different ways to see whether it seems to um, confirm that you know, there's, there are these two roles and they're distinctly different. And actually it didn't. Okay. So um, what it seemed much more like was the driver and navigator together sort of um, negotiated this landscape of different levels of granularity and abstraction, uh, which makes total sense. It'd be really hard to have a conversation if one of you was talking about syntax and the other one was talking about the customer domain kind of thing. Um, so it didn't seem to be that their heads were in very different domains. It was more that the the kind of cognitive, extra cognitive load of actually typing in and, and um, uh, was defined uh, by, you know, obviously who's driving and navigating and that's why you need to kind of switch regularly. Mm -hmm. But there were some quite cute things as well that I noticed. So I videoed some sessions and one that was particularly fun, there was uh, one person was driving and the navigator had this ball of paper clips that they'd kind of rolled up into yeah. a little ball. And as the driver was kind of clicking with the mouse and moving around, they were... And I think really subconsciously, they didn't realize they were doing it, moving this ball of paper clips around on the desk. And um, they sort of sit back and talk a little bit about the problem. And then when the navigator then wanted to drive, they'd let go of the paper clips. And that was almost like this subconscious cue to say, actually, I want the real keyboard and mouse now. And the other person would slide it over to them. So it was really fantastic. There was this whole kind of subconscious thing that going on. And the other thing that I found that I really, really liked um, was that more experienced pairs talk significantly less yeah. um, than less experienced pairs, which is interesting because at the time I thought collaboration, that's all about talking and, you know, chatting. And actually it seems like a really important thing to learn is uh, when to kind of take a break uh, when to just have some thinking time, when to be quiet. Yeah, I think it's probably still, obviously, that very much XP, um, obviously, or very much about pair programming. Do you, st do you still, still think, Sal, it's... Because I know a lot of Scrum teams that either love it or hate it, or not hate it, it's a strong word, but, but are, they, they, they get a lot of value or they've, they've kind of tried it. Is it still being used as much now, do you think, or has it changed over the years? So I think, so, so one thing that I see in the kind of evolution of programming now is that obviously people are doing um, ensemble programming or some people call it uh, mob programming yeah. uh, more as a whole group. Um, and I, th I think some of the things that we learned from pairing is probably still true about that, which are working together like that is exhausting and even the teams that I looked at way back then that said oh we pair full-time yeah. they never nobody no. ever paired from nine o'clock in the morning till five o'clock at night because you just can't do it no no um so they had breaks and I think 
maybe some people when they try it they kind of think it was all about talking you've got to talk all the time you don't have any breaks you know it's really really full-on and they go oh my gosh it's exhausting I hate it um and I think you know part of the learning is is that you you just can't can't do it like no yeah I think it also requires a heck of a lot of trust and doesn't it in terms of you're very much um showing you're showing off your work to one of your co-workers and if 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 you know if you're at all worried about how how strong it is or how good it is potentially you know you're not going to want to share everything that you know with with your co-workers so I think it is very much probably a, a, um, a sign of the team strength as well yeah so you can feel quite exposed I think particularly um in in teams where kind of vulnerability and things yeah. aren't necessarily the norm I think yeah. it can can feel quite exposed and obviously there are people who would um you know just just rather just rather have quiet time uh, a, bit, a bit more kind of contemplative and I think there's a place in the industry for all of that yeah absolutely I think that's that's a nice little link on to um how most people would be be aware of you I mean they're not, not not everybody's lucky as I am to have worked with you in lots of different capacities but most people will be familiar with you for really starting that difficult conversation about neuro neurodiversity um in, in in the industry what what where did that come did you say is it always something the thing for you or was it something that you thought you know what something's happened and something needs to be spoken about here so uh I uh, one of my children got an autism diagnosis, mm-hmm. um, and the early in the, the kind of early days of that, when when we, I was kind of reading about it, I kind of got very intensely interested in needing to know everything about it in a very cell-like kind of way. Um, as I was reading and learning and going on training courses and all that kind of thing, I just ended up thinking, "Gosh, you know, a lot of this seems very kind of personally familiar to me." Um, and, um, I called my sister up who is a clinical psychologist and said, uh, do you think I might be autistic? Uh, and she went, ah, well, uh, <laughs> don't know if you'd be diagnosable, but you've definitely got a lot of traits. Uh, so that was interesting. And now actually I do have a diagnosis, but, um, and uh, so then I got to thinking about lots of the people again like you know some of the really outstanding teams that I worked on over the years had people on them who were incredibly quirky and yet completely accepted Mm -hmm. and some of those people were people who could come across as you know who 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 maybe like traditionally you think are they a bit grumpy just because they like have peace to think about things and quiet um and then other people who are like incredibly flamboyant and and just just like loads and loads of different people in different brains and that seemed to be really important to those kind of special teams um but then when I thought about all the the work that I'd been doing as a as an agile coach and I think a, a lot of that community were doing about you know no we need to make these open plan environments we need to break down all the cubicles and everybody needs to collaborate all the time and actually that's just a different kind of monoculture so it was kind of like actually we've been moving from this monoculture of 
back in the day when programmers all sat in cubicles and nobody spoke to anybody else, right over to the other extreme of everyone has to collaborate all the time, it has to be really vibrant and noisy and et cetera, et cetera. And that just like in the other case, that just wasn't going to cater for all the different kinds of brilliant minds that we need. Mm-hmm. Um, so that was kind of that's kind of why I started getting interested and involved in it because I was just kind of it was a personal journey that brought me to that point. But the point that I got to was we've got all these brilliant minds. We know that there's a higher um, a higher propensity for people um, who um, maybe are are, are autistic to be interested in STEM subjects, not exclusively, but, you know, when you look at the number of people who have diagnosis in in education or whatever, um, there is a tendency to be, so why aren't we supporting those people? Why aren't we making good environments and processes and all that kind of stuff for those kinds of brains? And why haven't we got a more inclusive environment? And that's kind of what set me off on the, on the journey of wanting to talk about it. And I far from think I've got all the answers, but I think I'm quite good at poking away at the questions. Exactly. And that, that's something that I think, you know, you've, you've, you've helped role model to me over the years is, is making sure that you're okay with not you don't need to know all the answers and sometimes just starting the conversation you know is is the part to play um i was reading something i didn't go into a lot of detail but it was one of those things where you know you read a small article and you think all right i'm going to flag that and i'm going to follow that up another time Mm. this morning i was reading about this this concept of team flow so i was talking to people about individual flow and this idea of team flow and the article was kind of it didn't use the words merged consciousness, but it was kind of hinting at that, you know, shared subconscious awareness of the team. And that came to mind when you were talking about that sort of quiet collaboration almost of, you know, navigator and driver. And I see that in a lot of successful teams as well. Even even in a larger group, you can have people that are really, really quiet. And if they've been working together for a while, you've got an appreciation of how people work and where their strengths are and the value that they add. Every now and again, the, the the louder person shall we say will turn around and say so so paul what do you think mm. um or just let's break for five minutes and digest and come back and mm. that that takes quite a while to build up doesn't it but that, uh, it's it's really simplistic overly simplistic of me to say that we've you know, we've got to accommodate the introverted and the extroverted that that's that's way too simplistic but the, the definition there of going from the the, the cubicles to the full-on open plan and now back to lockdown where we're all in our in our sheds and garages and what have you it's it's that kind of backwards and forwards what's what what is the middle ground what 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 have you seen change since this conversation started so i think i think it's not about finding a middle ground i think it's about finding a blended environment okay so an environment where you've got open plan spaces where you've got individual spaces where you've got you know an 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 optionality I really feel like that's super important to have these 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 different environments and have an optionality about you know opting in or out of sessions and and rooms and and different things like that but also providing other ways for people to contribute that aren't verbal as well um so maybe setting topics in advance so people know what's going to happen at a meeting giving them the opportunity to contribute by email or anonymously Mm -hmm. or whatever that 
you know, whatever that looks like for folks. Um, because those quiet people, and I'm not, you can probably tell naturally one of those quiet people at all. Um, but, but, but I have often found that they'll be quiet, 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 quiet. And then it will be like thoroughly, deeply thought about something that you'd missed or... Um, uh, and talking, think, sorry to interrupt, Sal, but talking about something we've missed, you did break up just after quiet, quiet, quiet there. Did so I? we did miss something there. <laughs> so these people, they'll be quiet, 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 and then... And then, yeah, and then one sentence, but it's absolutely mind-blowing. Yeah. Mm. Because they've thought about a different angle or a real depth or, you know, something that that's, that's different to the flow of which the rest of the team have been groupthink kind of yeah. moving in, if you like. It's a, Paul and it's I a, came up with um, the sidecars, didn't we? And that, that's kind of the thinking behind the process yeah. there. Yeah. Of letting people debate, letting people talk, but then asking effectively the quietest member of the group to sum up what they've heard because they'll have been listening the best. Mm. They'll have been processing more than the other people who've been putting their point of view forward. It's, it's a really like token gesture to that, but something to be more inclusive. Mm. It's, a, it's a phrase I was going to add that we hear a lot is um we use a lot in this house here is uncomfortable silences but I think I wonder I just wonder if it's just um more extroverted types that find those silences uncomfortable because me and my son are the same we actually quite like a bit of silence we quite like to sit and just you know kind of think um uh, and I think yeah like you say many scrum teams many many teams find that com that silence deafening because they feel the need to fill it they feel the need someone's got to say something um but yeah it might just be that we just need a bit more thinking time we just need a bit, bit more time to, to mull over this mm, and i and i even think sometimes it might be like the next day it's yeah. such a shame we say right end of the meeting we've got to make a decision you know that's it all over and and it's <clears> almost like you can't come back you can't revisit it that's that's gone to one side now rather than it's completely fine to tomorrow think of some input that you that you want to include yeah. so i think it's that's, finding that's a new ways to make that happen it's a combination yeah. of our impatience as a society and that that sort of gravitation towards extroversion mm. uh, and noisy collaboration and almost the, the extroversion gets it gets you noticed and gets you further i think that you, you've seen as you know even dare I say it within the agile space, you're expecting scrum masters to an extent. And, you know, many scrum masters, me included, um, come from a developer, developer background where we're not naturally extrovert. So we're not naturally used to that type of um, environment. So, but yeah, yeah, we're, we're seeing that, you know, that those, those leaders that we're expecting to be more, um, certainly more vocal and more, um, more facilitating decisions. So I think, um, and I think we're kind of deadline junkies, aren't we, a little bit? Yeah. You know, we're kind of like decision junkies. It's kind of not just in the big. I think that filters right down to this, you know, by the end of this hour, we're going to have decided what we're going to change in the next sprint or we're going to have decided what we're going to do next or we're going to have to decided um, rather than we just decide on the first little thing we're going to do and then we're yeah. going to feel what, you know, where to go, where to go from there. Do you think, Sal, you're training as an and your style as a coach as a trainer is, has changed on the back of that what you've learned 
Yeah, I think so. I think so. I think I'm much less likely to, you know, go go into a room and be like, right, everybody stand up. How are you feeling to go? A word from everybody, you know, yada, yada, yada. Everyone uses their voice right at the beginning and, uh, and, and, and really expecting everybody to be in the same mode the second you get in the door. Mm. Mm. But it is hard. I mean, it's hard if you've just got a couple of days with a group yeah. to allow those bits of contemplation through. But things like, you know, letting, having space for written exercises as well and people writing things down quietly or contemplating things on their own or, or having optionality around things, I think is definitely something that I've changed. Mm. I would. I can't help but speculate that your your diving would have helped because I I've only done diving once, and it was the word I would associate with you calm, uh, and seconded by slow, mm. uh, because you're slower underwater, aren't you? Um, I wonder whether that yeah, and it's quieter as well, isn't it? So every, your senses are sort of dulled a little bit, and I don't know that might have played a part somewhere. Yeah, maybe. I mean, one of the one of the things about diving is the better you get at it, the slower it is. It's like the laziest sport ever, because <laughs> as your buoyancy gets better, you don't even need to really kind of fin with your feet very much or anything, because you're just sort of in midwater, carefully looking at and and again the more interested you get in the marine, the more you start liking, like, yeah, the big things are really cool, but you start liking the really little things. So you get, in a way, it's, you get lazier and lazier as you go along, but it does become more, you know, you're, you've got this very gentle, slow breathing happening. There's, it's not too noisy apart from the sound of your own breath. Um, and although the environment can be quite busy and there can be quite a lot going on, it definitely feels almost meditative i've been um on family holidays before and seen people teaching scuba diving in the pool and just begged them like can i just can i just like blow some bubbles please just for a few <laughs> minutes they're like, are you qualified yeah i'm an instructor but i don't even need to go out i just want to be under the water <laughs> and i think some of that from a sensory perspective we know um some folks with sensory issues find uh, pressure on the body really comforting as well. So obviously mm. when you're underwater, that's really comforting too. So that's lovely. But I'm super lucky. I've got a swimming pool here and me and my, uh, my, my uh, boy, sometimes when we're a bit tense or whatever, I'm just like, it doesn't matter what time it is. It's just go, just jump in for a little while before bed. And it's almost like you can see the stress kind of away just leaving us it's really lovely awesome awesome so your, your phd was in collaboration wasn't it mm, yeah was it one of those degrees that started off being around something else and then ended up as collaboration or was it always going to be around collaboration yeah so at the beginning i i think when i when i pitched to the laboratory i was just like i'm just really interested in what makes expert teams interesting and special um so it was always going to be about teams um, but it, it, at the beginning, it wasn't about agile. It wasn't about pairing. It was just about really more about expertise. And I did find out some pretty intriguing things about expertise um, along the way, but that just didn't end up being the main focus. Okay. 
And was Jean's book one of the ones that you were reading in your first year or did you come across that later on? No, so I came across Jean later on. Um, and one of the things that I really loved about Jean was that she was so interested in collaboration and she wasn't at all surprised when I was kind of saying collaboration. I thought it was about noisy, noisy, but actually it's about quiet. And she was like, well, duh, you know, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so that was great. When I finally got to talk to her about all that stuff, it was really good. Hmm. And ha so yeah, how did you meet Jean? Um, so we were, I'm not sure which way around it was. But um, we were sort of in the first few scrum trainers. Um, and so we, we would get together at least annually, maybe even more than annually um, for scrum gatherings when there was only sort of 20 people or so. Uh, they were always over in America. Um, and she was just, because I was a real nervous wreck, um, didn't like socializing with people, um, especially outside of my country. Uh, and she just made everyone feel at home. Um, and so sort of look, looked after me a little bit really um, and then we got then we got to drinking and playing games so yeah yeah that was um, 2006 that was the first time I met her but she knew you before then Jeff so you must have yeah, met yeah. her before 2006 yeah I think it's probably about 2004 yeah but I think um, she's played and um she, she's Jean um she played a massive part in the agile movement and it's some, i think unfortunately sometimes it gets it gets forgotten about but i think i think she deserves a heck of a lot of credit um for what she provided and what she she certainly um influenced me heavily in terms of those first formative years as a coach i think that's fair to say she did you as well jeff didn't she definitely definitely and you know, she helped me in in many many different ways practically um mentally as well and i, I think it was lovely lovely touch at um, one of those conferences that where they had a nice moment at the start to, to dedicate that to her and she would definitely have been one of the first people on the list of these prestigious yeah. points calls and no doubt she would have found some time as well very generous lady that she was um, so uh, as someone who knew her really well um, what what's some of your memories of Jean? So my, my favourite memory, very early on in, in me knowing Jean, in fact, I'm wondering now if it might have been the first time I met her rather than when I trained with her. I was at a retrospective facilitators gathering. Mm -hmm. um, and I think so, I can probably date it because I was really heavily pregnant with my middle son, who's now 13. Um, and at the gathering, somebody was playing a game where, I can't remember what it was called, but um, it was a session that was about a game where you had, um, it was about politics and you had like the bank and you had to kind of like, the idea I think was that it sort of set you up to behave politically in teams against each other. And Jean and I decided really early on that we were just going to break the bank we were just going to ruin the system <laughs> so that everybody could win together and I like that and and, and I always felt that about Jean that she, there was something a little bit disruptive in the way that mm. she thought that I really really liked yeah a, a, a playful mm. naughtiness but she, she, she was very very keen on on <clears throat> everyone getting along really yeah. um, I remember one of her her most 
would I, I don't know what medium it would have been on at the time so maybe likes might not have been the right word retweets might not have been the right one I'm not quite sure but one of the most uh, attention attentive attention grabbing posts that she 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 posted was around basically this community of thinkers and yes scrum stopped taking a taking a stab at Kanban and Kanban stopped taking a dig at this and just you know you're all good people trying to do good things can you just play a little mm. bit nicer a bit more respect please uh, and that that I thought took a lot of lot of courage. Yeah, absolutely. And, and I mean, we still see those divisions in the communities today, right? So mm. sadly. Um, and, I, I, and I think when I first, so I was kind of later to the Scrum community than, than other people. And I was surprised when I first started going to Scrum things that there were people there that I'd never, that, that were well known within that circle that I'd never come across before or heard of and similarly people although you know kind of maybe some people in Europe in the XP world knew who I was like lots of people in the scrum world were like who are you like where have you come from um so it's really interesting how those communities hadn't really blended all that much and yet they have this really common interest yeah yeah I think I think Jean was one of those that did kind of she crossed a lot of those boundaries across different disciplines, not disciplines is the wrong word, but but um, communities, didn't she? And she, mm. she very much tried to bring people together rather than um, create divisions. And she was, yeah, she was always great, great at that and bring it. And you know, people wanted to be to work with her, and she, she didn't really mind, you know, which um, which community you were part of. She just was happy to work with you. And I remember her generosity hugely. Oh, I can remember yeah. one of the first times I met her, I was in a taxi with her going somewhere and she was just kept saying to me, how can I help you though, Sal? What can I do to help you? And I almost felt like I could ask her anything and <laughs> she'd do yeah. her best. I remember the first, um, Jean was the, uh, the person that introduced me to werewolves for the first oh, time, yeah. the game werewolves. That was, that was Jean, that was Portland in... Um, 2007 I'm going to say 2008 something like that and yeah I was I was one of those new trainers to a, a scrum gathering and um Jean just she just asked me do you want to come and play this game and I said yeah and, and then then you could just get to know she just introduced you to everyone and mm. just the catalyst for for people talking it was great and I've played been playing werewolves ever since so I, can, I can th thank Jean <laughs> yes, for that one. we all have I think uh, exactly yeah mm. <laughs> I remember st standing up in the middle of the room and howling that was her, that was her. she had she had kind of a call to bring people this is that they were going to go play werewolves so she stood up stood off a chair just put her, her head back to the ceiling and just howled it was hilarious but she, everyone knew what she meant it was, it was like a like a call it's brilliant perfect and I, I, you, you'll remember this better than me so I'm, I'm drifting slightly away from Jean, but it might have been the same time that we that we were around about that same time um we were we were working somewhere together it might have been a talk it might have been at a conference i don't know but you ever so delicately and politely told me how wrong i was <laughs> in in front of a big group of people yeah 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 because I, I had i had my definition well, this, of collaboration this is a bit awkward now isn't it i feel i feel <laughs> I can't remember. <laughs> okay, but bear with me because this 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 is going to be something very useful for everybody else. I'm sure. So I had my my definition of collaboration. I think I was talking about the difference between cooperation and collaboration in my layman type words. And you said, "Actually, that's not that's not strictly true." Uh, how you define collaboration there? Um, 
Would you like my deputy? <laughs> um, offering, uh, lovely. Uh, but yeah, that that that, and and I know you've also did did a, um, a thing with Esther because I remember having a chat with Esther Derby about the, the sort of dangers of dipping your toes in other worlds um, without knowing what you're talking about. Mm. Um, I think I think we can all be a little bit guilty of that with good intentions. Um, but so, how would you? define collab what is the technical definition of collaboration oh it's a few years since i've uh, <laughs> since i've been asked that um so one of the ways that i remember talking about the difference between more of a cooperative way of working together and a collaborative way of working together um is um if you think that you're with somebody else and you're doing a crossword together and if you said to that person, well, look, I'm going to do the down clues and you're going to do the across clues and then we'll work out where they black and where the problems are and then, you know, we'll fill the whole thing in, that that's more of a cooperative approach than collaboration and that collaboration is more kind of let's read out one across, let's discuss it, let's think about it, maybe quite a little bit, maybe talk about it a little bit until we agree together on what we want to put in for that word and how we want to move, what we want to move on to next and do next. So that's the kind of metaphor that I quite like. Okay, yeah. So I think I was, the, the chances are the only, my best guess at what I was talking about was saying that you can't force collaboration. Uh, I could force people to cooperate potentially, but I couldn't force people to collaborate because it was voluntary. It was um, that that kind of thing. Uh, but I never really had that sort of technical background behind me to, to explain it properly. And I think now when I hear people talking about um, many parts of collaboration or agile working or environments, I'm quite... Um, I don't know if disruptive is the right, right term, but quite often our people will say, people will make these huge sweeping statements um, when, they're, when they're in a session or in a talk about like, and then everyone does so-and-so and I'll be the person saying, well, hang on, but what if somebody doesn't work in that way? Or if, what if somebody needs to be quiet? Or what if somebody needs time to think about it? Or, um, you know, needs to be in a different room or any of these different things. So I, I, I kind of like that, not, not, not trying to be difficult, but just trying to poke away a little bit and be like, that just sounds a little bit like a sweeping generalization. And I don't think that works with people. And I think we're only just starting to understand the extent to which it doesn't work. Yeah, the world's not as simplistic as we would like it to mm. be. Mm. The, last, the last I knew, or the last time we were together, you were at Cucumber, mm -hmm. which I was a... My first instinct was to say it's a classic example of, of your geeky background, but that would be completely unfair because the, I actually associate with Cucumber making the geeky understandable for people like me. Yeah, yeah, totally. So so that came about in a, in a kind of funny way. So I hadn't done any coding for a while and obviously the tech world had changed quite a lot. And I thought, oh, I wonder if I still love coding as much as in my head, nostalgically, I think I love mm -hmm. coding. Um, uh, what I'll do is I'll do a coding tour 
so I hit up loads of people that I knew were, were, were coding. So Rachel Davies was one. She'd gone back to a, yeah. a technical role and still is in one now. Um, Claire Sudbury, uh, who's a good friend of mine as well, and, and a, 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 a lead developer. Um, and, um, and the folks Cucumber, I think I was talking about doing this coding tour and, and Matt Wynn was, was like, well, why on earth aren't you coming? Aren't you coming to us? And so, very kind. We had meetups. Uh, everyone worked remotely, um, quarterly meetups, and they said, "Well, just just come to a meetup. We'll invite you to a meetup, and you can code with us, and etc. Cetera, etc." Cetera. Um, and that was kind of the start of a beautiful relationship with with, with cucumber. So, um, so what started as just the coding tour ended up with uh, me kind of. Uh, joining the joining the company, um, becoming an owner in the company, and uh, having having heaps having a, heaps of fun and a really good time. Um, one of my favourite things is I was allowed to. Well, I mean, everybody did kind of choose their own job title, um, and it was C-suite, so I just called myself Chief Being Sound Officer. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, no one can do that better than you. No, yeah. Well, there are probably some other sales in the world that would be equally good at it as me, I guess, or that would be a bit different. Um, yeah, so so uh, so that was that was that was really really good, and then obviously um, Cucumber are now part of a larger um, a larger organisation. So they were bought, um, and uh, that was just a good time for me to go. Oh, I I, I liked being in a little little gang with with my mates <laughs> but I don't yeah. really want to go working for a big big corporate again so uh I retired but I'm always retiring and then something <laughs> comes along and I and sparks my interest and I go oh I'm really bad for that's a shiny exciting thing I want to get involved with so um yeah so that shiny moment, exciting thing appeared yet or not no, no, I've, um, so uh, I suppose the very unshiny, not very exciting at all thing that happened was COVID. So that mm. uh, that all happened just before COVID, which was in a, in a way really good timing for me because I've got three kids with really different needs and experiences, very different age groups at three different schools um, who needed a lot of support. Um, well, differing support between the children, but um, between the three of them needed a lot of support with homeschooling and, and whatnot. So I really was kind of moved into being a full-time parent and teacher and all the things that a lot of us a lot of us did over covid um yeah and now oh now i'm just having loads of fun i mean i've i've just got into loads of like i'm keeping chickens and (laughs) i've got really back into going to the gym and doing loads of sport and all that kind of stuff. I'm just about to learn to do dry suit diving so I can keep diving in the winter, which I've never done in the UK because I guess we can't really go many other places yeah. uh, right now. So I want to do some cold water diving. I'm wondering if I might get into ice diving at some point. Um, but in terms of the like tech community, I keep an eye on it. I've got some nice little kind of groups that I keep in touch with and um but I'm not really actively involved in anything in tech right now. All right, cool. Cool, lovely. Um, Sal, I've got, I've got kind of um, a bit of a, a fi- well, from my perspective, a, a kind of a, a summary, a final question. Mm. Um, 
because I'm really interested and I, I know that I've, I've been trying to, to um, follow what you've been saying and very much trying to change my style to be more inclusive um, of people in my community and people that I teach and coach. If you, based on what you've learned, what you've picked up um, about um, how we're all different and how we need to adjust our, our, um, our environment and our style, if you, were try, if you were trying to issue a kind of a call to action or kind of a, a request for myself, Jeff, and for others to, to do something a bit different, to, to improve and, and make, make our environments that a little bit more inclusive, what would you ask for? What would you, what would you ask of us or the rest of us or ask, ask of our listeners, do you think? I think it would depend if it's a new environment that you're asking people to come into or if you're going into their environment. So, so, so there's going to be two parts, and I'll probably forget this part way through, but um, remind me that there's a second part. Okay. Um, so if I was if I was going to do a training course yeah. and it was a new environment and I was asking people to come into the new environment, I would take photos of the room and send to people in advance so they okay. know what it's going to look like. Right. I would show them what reception looks like. I would um, um, I would give them some structure for the time that they were going to spend with me what kind of things were we going to do what kind of questions they were going to be asked particularly icebreakers kind mm -hmm. of thing yeah you know i'm not gonna put everyone on this i would make a point of saying there's optionality as many times as i could i would make sure people knew it was up to them when they wanted to take breaks I would also want to provide quiet spaces and let people know that it's completely okay to take themselves off to a quiet space whenever they wanted to. Mm -hmm. If I was going into a company coaching, mm -hmm. obviously usually got a bit less scope for moving things around physically and changing the physical environment. Um, I think I would try and have multiple rooms rather than one if there was any chance of me doing that. Um, I think I would be eyes and ears really open to help maybe the, um, the organization think about some of those things. So, you know, sometimes you go in and it's noticeable, bright, loud places. Um, and and be able to sort of feed some of that back mm. that this could be a really overstimulating environment for some people and and is there a, you know is there a different kind of room or space that you can provide for people and so thinking about those kinds of things but again also you know really dialing back on the surprises so yeah. I'm going in particularly you know sometimes we do end up in quite uncomfortable conversations don't we when we're coaching where we have to ask people about difficult things that they're facing in their yeah. working lives difficult structures difficult processes so just to offer people the opportunity to answer some of those questions anonymously if they wanted to um, one of the really lovely um, exercises that Catherine Kirk showed me um, at one point that she'd done somewhere was um, a, what she called a slow-mo retro, which was okay. a retrospective where people put post-it notes up on a board over days or indeed sometimes weeks anonymously. Mm. And the quality and depth of feedback that you get from that kind of 
exercise as opposed to we're all in a room together, you know, quickly write something down or shout out your ideas or whatever. It was notably different. You've got to be ready, I think, for some some potentially some quite harsh truths um, if you're going to do that kind of exercise because people obviously will feel freer to write down some things than they might say in you know but 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 often those are the real critical things good yeah it's good (coughs) excuse me yeah that idea of not putting people on the spot Mm. (coughs) excuse me not putting people on the spot and yeah we did the same thing in um in Nokia when we're there, we had the idea of shoebox retrospectives, similar thing, but basically people putting, it wasn't um, public. So I suppose with it being on the wall, you can see those things being added as they crop up, but this mm-hmm. was anonymous. So people can drop things into a, literally a shoebox at the, at the front on one of the desks, similar type of thing. Mm-hmm. I had just to come back on one thing there, Sal, it's the, one of the first things you mentioned and it, and it struck a chord to me. I remembered it was the, and it's something that I'm developing a bit of a, um, the bugbear with is is the term icebreaker now many people um and it tends to it's starting to wind me up because i do a lot of improv games i do a lot of um of um, improv exercises and I've, I've noticed that a lot of people started to come back to me saying oh i didn't like that icebreaker or that i'm not a big fan of icebreakers which i completely understand do you think the the uh, the word icebreaker is becoming a um something that's you know that's creating that that sense of, of fear do you think it's the wrong word or do you think it's we should just what's your thoughts on the word icebreaker that's, that's what i don't want to ask i think it's got to the point because people have had bad experiences with them that when yeah. someone says icebreaker you just go yeah, like exactly, you can yeah. see people clam up and i don't think it's because the word ice or the word breaker are bad terms and putting mm. them together is a bad term I just think people have had bad experiences. So now when you say it, it's a clam up kind of a word. Yeah. Mm. It's just got a stigma. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, that was the only thing I picked up on. Thank you. Sal, thank you. Yeah, thanks, Sal. Oh, thanks for having me. It's been lovely to catch up. Not just for this, but just for for all that you've done, for just, you know, starting those conversations, for getting us all, not just me and Paul, but... The, you know, the wider industry to be thinking more inclusively yeah to be more mindful about participation um not just around introversion extroversion women in agile all sorts of different aspects of diversity that you've been championing and just um pushing forward i think it's a, it's a huge role that you've played um and on behalf of everyone in the industry i want to say thank you for that um and of course thank you for for joining us here um any any um any sort of plans for the future hopes for the future mm, don't know i feel like at the moment so i'm also very very impassioned about uh, climate change and i've been doing you know banging a drum on the streets of london in the last couple of years of the extinction rebellion um just trying to raise awareness for all of that i would love for all of those little worlds to meet up and me to be able to do some underwater climate tech <laughs> <laughs> well you never know some never blend know. of interest is going to come along at some time i do feel very much like the ethical side of technologies very much if i if i if i'm you know, continuing in tech. That's where my heart is now. Mm. Yeah, good awesome. place to be. Well, I'm I'm pretty confident that you will find that shiny thing and it will be awesome. Um, 
we're going to raise a glass to Jean Abs as well. Absolutely, absolutely yeah. Absolutely, yeah. yeah. To you. Cheers. Get your Ribena out. Get your Ribena out. Get my Ribena out. <laughs> cheers, Al, and cheers, cheers. Jean. Cheers, absolutely. Cheers, Jean.